Welcome to another episode of Masters of Niche, a podcast where we have conversations with individuals who have been able to carve out a unique space for themselves in the marketplace. Through their business, work, podcast, newsletter, life, they have been able to take something from niche into the mainstream. K-pop is the ultimate example of something originally considered niche blazing into the mainstream, with groups like BTS hitting the number one spot on charts around the world, K-pop is here to stay. Today we have Tamar Herman, K-pop writer for the South China Morning Post, co-founder of K-pop website Cold Scene, and author of BTS, Blood, Sweat and Tears, a phenomenal book on BTS and K-pop as a whole on. During this conversation, we talk about Tamar's career, the K-pop industry, K-pop fandom, and of course her incredible book. If you're even remotely interested in K-pop or the future of music, this is a must listen. Let's get right into it. So, uh, Tamar, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to chat. Awesome. Well, again, I told you this before, but I'm super appreciative of the fact that you're you're joining all the way from Hong Kong. It's early in the morning now in, in New York, um, obviously a different time zone uh, over in Asia. So again, really appreciative. You're originally from New York, but now you're, you're, you've traveled around the world, you're writing, um, so tell me about the story. How did you originally get into writing? And most importantly, given our, our topic today, uh, how did you originally get, get into K-pop writing? Those are two different questions. The writing, I kind of was never <laughs> not into writing. I used to sit in the back of my classes, not doodling, but uh, writing stories and whatnot. Ever since like I was a kid, I used to like have a diary that I'd write in. Um, I don't even remember. I used to be like, oh, I want to be Harriet the Spy. I don't know why. Um, and so it was something I was always doing. And then when I was in high school, I became familiar with K-pop. Uh, the internet is a great thing. And when I was in high school, um, around 2008 was when I got into K-pop. And that's when a lot of people got into K-pop because that's when YouTube started bringing K-pop to more and more people than ever before. So it was kind of right as... YouTube's early days were bringing like new music to people for the first time instead of just like funny llama videos and stuff. Um, <laughs> so K-pop artists like Big Bang and Girls Generation and Super Junior and Wonder Girls and Kara, they were all really, really big at this time. And they were going viral internationally because of dance moves. So you would go on. Um, I remember I, I don't remember. It wasn't the first thing that I saw for K-pop. I was already a fan at that point. But I remember there was this one, I believe it was a Filipino prison that like <laughs> the exercise for the prisoners daily was to learn a K-pop dance and they filmed it like in their orange jumpsuits. And <laughs> it was like a really wild, like in retrospect, as someone who's like very much become an abolitionist, I'm like, that is bonkers. Um, but at the time it was very kind of like, oh, this this is such a popular thing. That one always stands out to me. I don't know why. So anyway, so I became a fan casually just like finding out through friends online and stuff and um, through the internet because at this point like eventually wonder girls went on to you know tour with uh the jonas brothers it was a bit it was a big moment for k-pop in the the like talent of the early 2000s and so i stayed as a fan through high school and college and when i was in college a professor heard me and a friend talking about k-pop and was like why don't you take korean class and uh, long story short, I ended up majoring in East Asian studies and I was in, um, uh, Maurice, I know you're in New York, but if 
you're not from New York and you're listening, I went to the City University of New York, CUNY, the honors program called Macaulay Honors College. And I, uh, it was fully funded and I had a grant to study abroad and I went to Seoul. And while I was there, I started blogging. I started writing about more about the music and I ended up connecting with a bunch of other bloggers. And that's kind of when things kind of started to formalize for me. It was never really like, I'm going to become a writer. It was just like, I am writing and I want other people to read it rather than just writing it for myself. Um, and so I started blogging. And then when I came back to the US, uh, this was about 2013, I still kept writing. And by the time I graduated, I had actually gotten an, an internship totally unrelated to my degree in East Asian studies, totally unrelated to everything uh, at NBC New York. So I was an intern on the local news show for NBC's local affiliate in New York. And I ended up getting a full-time job offer straight out of school. So I didn't study journalism, but I uh, a lot of journalists don't. It's kind of more important to do the journalism and get a good like uh, grounding than to necessarily study. Um, so I mean, different routes for different folks. But for me, that was my route. So I was blogging on the side and starting to pitch outlets like early ones I wrote for were about K-pop were MTV Iggy, which was uh, was MTV's international site. It is now defunct NBC News. I interviewed a uh, Korean hairstylist in K-Town in New York City to talk about how she's in demand for when like Korean celebrities come to town and stuff. It was very random stuff. <laughs> uh, and so over the years, I kind of stayed in the game, even when I was trying to figure out what I was doing with my career and my life. I didn't really have a direction beyond I like journalism and I like K-pop and I don't know how to make that mix. And eventually I ended up switching to full-time freelance and I got connected with Billboard and I started writing for Billboard magazines, uh, the website in 2016, I think 2016. <laughs> and so, and then I kept doing that until recently when I moved to Hong Kong to be a K-pop reporter for the South China Morning Post, which is the biggest English language newspaper here. So I, I do want to dive a little deeper into the last part, which is obviously you, you recently moved. I, I have to ask, what has that been like, obviously, in the, in the past few months? And more specifically, I think this is the first time when you're moving from being kind of a freelance writer to kind of a full-time writer covering a full K-pop beat. Um, so for, you know, we have some listeners who are journalists or aspiring journalists. What's that like? So yeah, so moving across the world in the middle of a pandemic sounds really dumb, but actually it was probably even easier than moving at any other time. I had never really decided to move. I had been pretty unhappy freelancing for a long time. Um, finances were difficult. Like I mentioned earlier, I didn't have to pay for college. I had a full scholarship through my program. Every student does. It's a great program if you have a kid who you want to go to New York City school for free. Um, and so I didn't have any debt. And that's how come I, that's how I could continue my career because I was like doing piecemeal pieces a lot of the time for people. So like, you know, $50 here, $250 there, sometimes like rarely um, uh, over a thousand for a piece, but that's so, so rare in journalism nowadays. So, um, I'm lucky that I had like my family's support to rely on. And then when COVID, like when I needed it, which thank goodness was not a lot, but I knew, I knew at the back of my head, like I wouldn't be homeless. Um, and it took me a long time to feel really even comfortable with freelancing. And then pretty much just as I finally was confident that I had enough money on like my own coming and I had enough work, um, I turned 
26. I think it's 26 or 25. I don't remember, which is when you get kicked off your parents' insurance if you're still on it in New York. And I realized that as I was getting closer to 29, I was really screwed because from 26 or whatever that age is, sorry, I'm, it was a long time ago. Um, from that age when you're kicked off being a child to being an adult, you can opt in for insurance to stay on like the same plan as your parents, but like as your parents' company, but you have to pay for it. So I was, I decided because of some health issues of mine and because I go to therapy and that's very expensive in New York, I needed insurance and it needed to be a good insurance. So we decided that I was going to stay on my parents' plan and I was just going to pay for that directly. It was very, very, very expensive. And then when I was turning 29, when I turned 28, I realized I need to do something because when I turned 29, I can't be on COBRA anymore. So even the expensive option is going to disappear. Insurance is a disaster in the US. I'm, I've now learned since coming to Hong Kong. So pretty much when I turned 28, I realized by the time I turned 29, I need to have a full-time job with insurance because I the, the f- options for freelancers in New York is really bad. The options for um, uninsure, unemployed or you know, freelance people like on the marketplace is really bad. Like you have, like you're going to be paying like anywhere between 300 and 500 a month. And then there's still like a $15,000 deductible before you pay. So it's like not, and you can't even pay more monthly and get a less, it's like a whole disaster. Uh, so I realized that I needed to be employed. So around, um, like my birthday was in September. And so I turned 28 in September, twenty. 19. And I realized, okay, I have to start looking for a job. So I was looking and keeping an eye on things. I spoke with Billboard. It didn't seem like they would be able to move me over to a full-timer. And then I happened to see that the South China Morning Post was looking for a K-pop writer. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. They were looking for a lot less experience than me, but I figured because I had just been doing freelancing so long for so long, I'm, that might be weighted against me because I wasn't on staff. In journalism, that's not really something that people necessarily care about because as long as you can get the job done, you're still a good reporter. Um, and so like – and everyone knows how crappy the industry is in the US. So I didn't really think it would be held against me, but I wasn't I wasn't sure, you know. I – oh, <laughs> I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but I wrote a book about BTS that came out in August called BTS Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And um, and I've been in a Netflix documentary called Explained. I've been on an upcoming YouTube one. I, I'm not – I don't mean to toot my own horn, but I'm pretty good at what I do. So I wasn't sure if they would even have the budget to bring me over. Um, in the end, they were able to. And because of COVID and because of the insurance situation, it was honestly the easiest decision I've ever had to make. Uh, it's not like I'm hanging out with my friends back at home. There's not a lot of things I'm missing when nothing is happening in the U.S. Um, work wasn't coming in as a freelancer when COVID hit. Advertisers pulled out of a lot of media companies. And so even the, if I was getting work, I was still competing with a lot of journalists who now weren't getting work and a lot of journalists lost their jobs. So it just kind of became a bad environment. And I, um, I actually ended up on unemployment for a bit because freelancers for the first time could apply to unemployment ever in New York. And it was just like, there wasn't enough work coming in. It wasn't, it wasn't that there was no work. It was, there wasn't enough work. And so I was waiting on the SEMP to see if they were coming in, if they were going to you know hire me. And then there was like a delay with the visa. And I was just convinced it was never going to happen. And then I got here in October and had a quarantine for two weeks. And then I started my job while in quarantine. So that was a real experience. Um, And it's been a a really interesting uh, ride so far. I started in October and we're recording this in middle of February. 
and it's in some ways it doesn't feel so different from freelancing because we are working from home quite a bit. I now, um, sometimes I go into the office like once a week, mostly just to see some people who aren't like the ones I live around, but in Hong Kong things are kind of better. So it's not like such a huge deal. If you're not going into the office, like you could still go work in a coffee shop and stuff. Uh, things are pretty normalized regarding how we deal with the pandemic here in a way that is not really normalized in the, in like the U S in my experience when I was there. And based on what I'm hearing from my friends and family, it hasn't changed. So switching over to full-time is, it is such a weight off my shoulders. I didn't realize how stressed I was not just about the insurance, but just like that being a freelancer, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't like I was keeping track every single month. I need to make this amount of money and then I can stop. It was like every month, no matter how much money I brought in, I had to keep working harder and harder and harder because there's never going to be enough money as a freelancer because the money is going to stop one day. And because you don't have a contract, you don't have, I mean, I have contracts, but you don't have like, you know, uh, the, the, like the awareness that the money is going to keep coming, even if something were to happen. And I know most people in the U S don't have that, but I've learned that that's not normal. And so switching to full-time, aside from like the whole move across the world, which has been a whole other thing, um, working, I was kind of, I'm kind of just doing what I used to do in a more newsy format. But I, like I said, I started at NBC. And so I'm really comfortable with the newsy format. I'm really comfortable with just news writing or writing for newspaper audiences. I'm sure my editors would be like listening to this and they're like, Nope, Tamar doesn't know what she's talking about. We have to edit her stuff so much because I like using lengthy paragraphs and that's not a CMP's newspaper style. So they get quite annoyed with me. Um, but it's it's really um, an interesting experience adjusting to working with like teams of people rather than just one or two editors or occasionally a larger team of people if like I'm working on a larger project or something. Um, but for most of my career as a freelance journalist, I was just dealing, you know, one-on-one with different editors. And, you know, if there was an issue, it was something I brought up with them. And maybe I'd come go into the office, like maybe once a month. Like I remember at one point I was going to Billboard's office, like once every other week. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. Like I'm going into the office. Like it was such a silly thing. Uh, but for me, it was different. I work I won't say I didn't work very well as a freelancer. I'm very comfortable being flexible. I'm very comfortable, you know, being stressed about deadlines, unfortunately, for my nervous system. And and so switching to a full-time job has been really, honestly, I feel really like hashtag blessed because I'm in a city that I feel very comfortable in during the pandemic. I'm in a job that... Um, no matter what job you are in journalism, it's never going to pay enough. But I'm in a job that my salary is coming every month. My insurance is covered. Uh, my I have days off. I can, you know, be sick. I don't have to worry about like, oh, no, if like I don't cover this new story right now, it's going to be the end of the world, which it was never going to be the end of the world. But it always felt if I didn't cover something in that minute, then I was losing money. Even if I wasn't actually cognizant of that, I kind of um made it so that every news story had to be covered cuz it was so important and i'm realizing now you know 
every story that I'm covering, someone else is going to cover, even if even if it's a week late, even if it's a month late, like the fans will get to it. Like it will it'll be out there. Like I'm not, you know, that important of a person in the scale of things. So now I'm focusing more on features. Obviously, I'm still covering news stories, but I don't have that same. I mean, I still do have that same bug, but I'm trying to like get myself away from it where I have to cover every news story. Like I realized (laughs) this was kind of crazy. I realized I was writing three times the amount of any other reporter on my culture desk on my team at work. Oh, wow. So like I saw the numbers for one month and I was like, I wrote 30 plus stories. And then, you know, this, I'm not going to say what, what, what reporter it was specifically, but this other reporter who was on like my same level wrote around 15. Like, why am I writing that much? Like, I don't need to. So I sat down with my editor and I said, you know, I don't, I don't need to do that. He's like, well, if you're pitching it to us, we're not going to say no. So just stop pitching us. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, I mean, like you're doing like, thankfully readers are reading your content. Keep up the good work. Don't like slack off. But if you want to spend time on other stories, just do that and like stop paying attention or not stop paying attention. Like um, he, he wasn't saying like ignore it, but we have wires essentially. Like we, if you're not a journalist, you have wires like writers or AP or other outlets that you can just grab the news that they cover from. Uh, we have a deal with them. I'm just going to push more wires onto them and focus more on features moving forward. But even that was something that like I had to step into. So it's definitely been an experience. It's really great to, to hear your story. And again, part of what our podcast is all about is kind of people and, and, and larger industries that start off as a, as a you know, quote unquote niche and then turn out to be something big. And I think your story as a journalist is very much a microcosm of this, of the stuff you're writing about in the sense of, you know, you're starting off kind of like one off in a, in a smaller space. Uh, but now you're, you're, you're a journal, you know, you're, you're a dedicated beat writer when it comes to K-pop, which is something again, when we first started listening to K-pop 10 years ago, couldn't have really imagined at the time that it, that it would have been. But one thing you did mention, which is something I want to talk a little bit more about is your book. Um, which is especially interesting given the fact that you just told the backstory, which is, you know, what was the impetus behind uh, behind your book? And and tell us a little bit about the story behind that. So BTS, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, it's not a mistake, just for putting that out there, because people always ask that, why isn't it Blood, Tears, and Sweat? BTS has a song called Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and the book, in my mind, on all my papers when I was submitting the pitch was BTS was blood, sweat and tears, the story of BTS. So I got, I don't know, corporate or marketing or someone decided it couldn't, it had to be BTS as the first word. So I'm still a little annoyed about that, but it, the cover is beautiful. So I'm never going to complain about it. Uh, so the book came about because I had been working on another project to do another BTS book. If you're unfamiliar with BTS, I don't know how, uh, but BTS are a South Korean boy band that got their start in 2013 formally. And they're huge. They are <laughs> the biggest thing under the sun and it's wonderful. And they have a lot of hits. They're, they have a Grammy nomination. Uh, you may have seen them on various late night talk shows if you're a U.S. audience member. Or if not, you probably have seen them all over social media or people talking about them, or they're in the news for whatever reason, for speaking at the UN, for fans donating a million to Black Lives Matters because they donated a million to Black Lives Matters and fans wanted to donate that and they reached that in 24 hours. There's a lot. 
there's a lot of great stuff going on. And so before then, um, or on on that route to because a lot of that stuff I just mentioned were pretty recent. Um in I want to say in like 2017 or 2018, BTS were already the biggest K-pop group we've ever seen hit the US. And they were, you know, having major tours, have breaking all these hits and records, getting all these wins at the Billboard Music Awards and the AMAs, and just they were huge. And so I was working on a project with a another writer to pitch around a book to companies in the industry, to book publishers. We're from we're in New York, you know, it's not so difficult to meet with uh we we were working with an agent who ended up becoming my agent, and we were like, let's write this book. And it was gonna be a two-person book. Uh, every single every single publishing house in New York that we reached out to, so any any of the bigger ones that we thought would be able to support a book about, you know, the biggest band in the world right now, uh, said no. And so we kind of like shelved it. And then a few months later, by chance, my editor from Viz, uh, Viz Media, Viz Publishing, which imports a lot of anime and manga, and they were they have been expanding into original content. And because they deal with a lot of fandoms, they thought a book about K-pop group that's huge would be a good like side along acquisition. So on June 13th, 2018, I got an email from my amazing editor, Sarah Fairhall. And uh, June 13th happens to be BTS's anniversary. So it was very fortuitous. Um, and so since then, <laughs> until when it was published on August 11, 2020, we worked on the book together. Um, a lot of we had to keep just keep rewriting and editing more stuff and adding adding and editing more stuff in because BTS kept on doing stuff and um, their fandom army kept on doing stuff and amazing stuff just kept on happening and I just said stuff a lot uh, but it's because BTS are so wonderful I I lose coherency after I've written seventy thousand plus words on them um, so I had been covering BTS really regularly at Billboard and and my work at Forbes and for other outlets. And um, I love BTS. I love talking about BTS. I could talk about BTS like so much longer than I can write about them. But uh, so we decided to work on the book together. I decited to name it after the the song Blood, Sweat and Tears, because I think that music video was a um, um, uh, like a, a real milestone in their career. And for a lot of reasons that song was, um, I said the music video first because the music video has some um, intense stuff going on that is tied into a lot of other artistic things that they do. And you could read my book and figure that out. But also because I, I was pretty um, stressed out by the idea of writing a book about something when for years I had just been writing uh, features and news stories. So I didn't really um, trust myself. I, 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 this was probably, you know, uh, a me problem less than anybody else's problem, but I, I wasn't sure if I could be confident in the way I, w- I was writing a whole book. So I decided to split into three parts. So it's blood is the history of BTS. Sweat is the musicality of BTS. When I went song by song through their albums and then, uh, tears is the, uh, kind of mini essays that I wrote about different elements of both the the band and their fans and their influence and you know why them and so I kind of uh, used the book as a kind of a almost like a final exam from all the work I've put in over the years covering them and also a compendium of all the ideas I've had and all the ideas I've heard from other people and all the ideas I've heard from fandom and like just like 
the ideas I heard from my editor when we were like shooting ideas against each other. And it just is like, you know, they say that, you know, it takes a village to raise a child and it takes like a whole city to write a book. So there's a lot of people that I'm really grateful for, for supporting me with the book. And um, I mean, obviously BTS could not have done it without them, but I just, yeah, when I finished, it wasn't when I finished writing the book. It was when I finished reading back the book for the first time after my, after the full book, like all the edits were done. I remember like my skin was tingling, like it was goosebumps. And I've never felt that before, like ever from anything I've ever done in my entire life. And I just was thinking, wow, I just did that. That was so cool. Um, I wrote a book about something I really love and something that I have a lot to say about. And like, even now I'm like, oh, I should have written that. I should have added this. I already need to write like a second edition of it. (laughs) Um, There's so much to say about BTS. Like I always say, this isn't, this isn't, you know, I don't, I I don't necessarily, no, sorry. I do want it to be kind of like the ultimate BTS book people turn to, but I also want it to be just the first of many books that people turn to about BTS, because I think there's something really beautiful about a whole work about, you know, a band or an artist you love. And so I, I hope more people, if you read my book and fall in love with them, or if you're already in love with them and read my book, I just hope that it helps you look towards more about them and you want to learn more. That's awesome. And and I highly recommend the book. Passion really comes through every single page. I mean, it, it clearly is written by a passionate fan of, of BTS, which is obviously what you want. It's super colorful. It's everything you want. And for people who listen to the podcast and want to know more, it's also a great way to learn more about K-pop. Uh, one of the first times that I really got to understand the gravity and, and, the, and kind of how big of a cultural force K-pop has become in the US, because, you know, we didn't really talk about this before, but similar to you, Big Bang was probably the first K-pop group I really got into. And then I kind of had a hiatus for a long time. I used to work for a company in the Prudential Center in Newark and uh, BTS performed there. And I remember, you know, we would have acts come through every single, you know, almost every single day. And sometimes the day of there would be a line when BTS performed, you know, there were lines outside for a week before. Uh, of people just wanting to be the first, you know, the first people to go into the arena. And it was a very big line around the arena while other events were still happening. Um, So that kind of showed to me that this is more than just a band. This is, and you make this uh, kind of argument in your book as well. It's very much a Beatles-like type of cultural force where it's more than just your favorite group. So obviously there's this term in K-pop called fandom. Um, So talk to us a little bit about this idea of fandom and fandom in particular, you know, for, for a K-pop group and kind of the differences between the original fandom in, in maybe Korea and then kind of how, what fandom is for a K-pop fan in the U.S. Yeah, so I, I always say that K-pop fans are very similar to metal fans in that they are really diehard. They're, they have a tight community. Like, um, Fortunately or unfortunately, because I don't actually like metal and I've had to go to several metal concerts because of these friends, uh, I've like, I know a bunch of metal heads who, you know, they have their crew and I have that sort of thing for my K-pop concerts. And I always think it's very similar. It's um, in the U.S. a lot of people who discover it either, you know, even whether they find out through a friend or, you know, they find out about it online or they're um, of Korean descent or they're of Asian descent and it's just something that like you know is part of their background and culture like I would say a lot of times 
people stay within stay engaged because of fandom elements whether it's you know communal life or you know tick like performing dances on tiktok or you know engaging with stan twitter or you know i've started websites with friends i co-own a blog called cult scene it's cult scene with a k k-u-l-t-s-c-e-n-e and we actually um with very little money that we have uh to spare we pay writers to be able to write about topics about k-pop that they're um passionate about and there's no other outlets that are like writing about it and um so you know i think a lot of people find find themselves in the k-pop fandom spaces you know it's people who you wouldn't necessarily come in contact with it's people who are beyond your local community it's people who you know maybe you wouldn't connect with otherwise like when i think about my friends who i've made it through k-pop and at k-pop concerts and who you know are some of my best friends now like i wouldn't or even my friends who i made when i studied abroad which partially came about because i was got into k-pop like it's just been such a amazing like uh like the the music sets the ball rolling and then everything kind of follows it and i think for a lot of fans it's like that you know we're in an age of like disconnect because of the internet but this thing that is a very digital oriented fandom and communal space is something that a lot of people can kind of um, engage with. And, you know, you don't necessarily have anything in common with me, but we can bond over this and then maybe we can understand each other more. So a lot of the times K-pop is a really in the Western spaces and the English dominated, because that's the only space I really um, spend a lot of time in. Uh, You see a lot of like people meeting of the minds that wouldn't happen otherwise. Of course, because we're dealing largely with digital spaces, there's a lot of toxicity. There's a lot of racism. There's a lot of, there's some concerns about doxing and, and scamming going on recently. It's, it's not all great, but I think that the greatness outweighs the, um, like the negativities because at the end of the day, K-pop starts as something that's escapist for a lot of fans. You know, it's this, it's this industry that's totally different than the one mo- for most fans um, is the, different than the one you're probably grew up with. And it's so good. The quality is so good. All the content is so good. You're not just getting music and music videos. You're getting tons of performances and tons of video content and tons of social media postings. And it's just so engaging. You like, it's so engaging at a time when you need, you know, when you think of the pandemic, like, obviously not the whole lifespan of K-pop fans in the U S is pandemic, but so much of the time you just want to disengage from the world, you know, and, and it's not that K-pop, you know, is so fantastical that you just forget about your life, but it, it makes you, I think, engage with other elements of the world that you wouldn't necessarily in the first place. And I think that's kind of the beauty of it. Um, obviously again, this is a generalization. Like a lot of fans grew up with K-pop, um, there's a lot of racial stuff that uh, or socio-cultural elements that are involved with like who K-pop fans are like and how they grew up with it and how they connect with K-pop and, you know, their backgrounds. Um, but I won't waste anybody's time talking about that because those conversations are endless. But I think that it's something I think it's something really beautiful and it kind of brings people together, even if, you know, they don't you know, some friends of mine have kind of like left those spaces, but I still, you know, I stay connected with them on social media. And every once in a while, like they'll ping us, like they'll ping me or like our group chat, like, Hey, I just saw this song came out. It's so good. Like what's, how are you guys doing? Like, it's just really nice. And 
obviously not everything is so nice. Like people are still people. Humans are terrible. <laughs> um, but I think it's pretty cool. And your other question about how fandoms are different in the West versus in, um, I, I only know really Korea, not like Asia as a whole in Korea. It's really important to many fans that you only are a fan or a stan, which is um, a a term that a lot of fans use to denote like being like the stan, the biggest fans um, of one group. It's really important because you have to spend a lot of time and effort and money to support your favorite band. So you might like other groups. You might like other Korean artists. You might like other musicians. You might be a fan of other people, but like, if you're a fan of a K-pop group, you probably spend most of your time in Korea. Like if you're a Korean fan, you probably just dedicate yourself to that one group. You try to, you know, get into all their concerts and try to go to all their fan signing events and all their TV shows you watch and everything. And it's kind of um, definitely there are people who kind of use it as the escapist type of thing as like a lot of Western fans do, but it's kind of just like a part of your life is you are a fan of this group and you know, you make friends with other fans. Like I have, I've been, (laughs) I've been in Korea before and like happened to be working or like doing an artist interview. And then I, I get a text from a friend like, Hey, I think I saw you. Like, where are you going backstage? I'm like, Oh, you're at this concert. Um, And it's, it's very, it's very much more. And I think personally I haven't, you know, I haven't done the research myself, but I think it's because money and time come into an effect. Like when you have so many K-pop groups and so many idols, you you want to put like, you need to put all your eggs in one basket. And so there's actually like, there's some really funny um, uh, television shows, K-dramas that like kind of satirize the, the need for K-pop fans in Korea to only like be a fan of one group and like when you're if your friend decides that they're not the same fandom as you anymore like it's like betrayal it's very funny i love seeing when they like get into that uh it's not so common but i I do track down those shows because i just want to see how they are portraying it um in the u.s k-pop fans traditionally and by traditionally i mean like when i was a baby fan so like in the two i guess the 2010s mostly until pretty recent like until the tail end of 2010 so like the 2000s and 2010s uh k-pop fans tended to be multis which is you know like it sounds they're fans of multiple bands they would follow multiple artists and multiple acts they'd go to many concerts they would go to you know they would support them all anytime a k-pop group came to the u.s fans from all other fandoms would be there you know i'd go to a got seven show and people would be there and exo and bts and b1a4 and red velvet and girls generation everyone would be there it'd be like a party almost of all the K-pop fans in the area. And then over the years, as the fandom grew and as the engagement for American fans grew, I think we're seeing more and more like um, only, only one fandom fans and as stands. And so it's changing. And I think, I think when there's so much content, you have to dedicate yourself to that. Like I literally make lists of things I need to watch. Like I have to, I'm up to this episode of BTS run. I need to watch this NCT thing. I need to watch this red velvet video that just came out. Like Itzy just dropped this thing that I need to watch. Like this is my job, but it's also my hobby. (laughs) And it honestly, there is not enough time in the day. Um, And so I, I imagine for most fans, it's, we're kind of shifting away because there's just too much, 
but you can, if you need to pick and choose which concerts you're going to go to, you're going to pick and choose the one that is your absolute favorite. So you're not going to spend the money on other ones. COVID is obviously changing some of that. And I do see a lot of fans, like one of my good friends, um, she she like followed loosely other groups, but she was definitely like diehard ARMY, which is BTS's fandom. And then like since COVID, she's like, oh, so like I, I was watching this BTS thing and they were talking about something about EXO and now I'm watching EXO's videos. And then like the next day, she's a diehard EXO fan. And then like a month later, she's like, I'm now a shiny stan. I'm like, well, that's great because shiny is about to drop an album. Um, and so like I'm seeing she's she's one example and she is an intense example. I don't know if necessarily like she's buying all their discographies. It's quite intense. Um, but I do see a lot of people kind of engaging um, with different elements of Korean music right now in like Western uh, stand spaces. Just like I think because the pandemic is we need so much more like creative joy than we have right now. So everyone's kind of looking to new places, even if, you know, it's not their main thing but they're just looking for more and i think that's kind of lovely um also of course you know i i I do want to add that it's not always lovely like being a k-pop fan nowadays in digital spaces is sometimes very not fun and with the pandemic and everyone at home that's also increasing so it's not all like um fun and games but it is a lot of fun it's it's like you know you have to have the rain the rain before the rainbow and those things always go together um, personally, I like rain and I like rainbows. So even though I think that there is a lot of like not so fun stuff, I always kind of remind myself that that not so fun conversations that often come out in K-pop spaces are because of passion and because people's passions are clashing. So even though I, I want everyone, um, I don't know if you, Maurice, or if the listeners have seen that seen Mean Girls and that scene of that um, girl who's just like, I want us all to be back like when we were children and getting along (laughs) um i always think of that i'm always like it'd be so nice if we could just all like get along in k-pop spaces because we all you know it's all art it's all creativity it's all you know entertainment at the end of the day so i wish i wish everyone could just enjoy but obviously i understand human passions and just because i'm like everything is wonderful not everyone feels that way so um i get it as not fun as it sometimes is i think it's coming from a good place that's really great. And one of the, the things that you touched on, which I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about is you're saying there's just so much content coming out. Too and one hard. of the things that you you say in your book is you talk about, and this is very much in the beginning, you talk about kind of like the, the idea of transmedia storytelling. So what is that like for K-pop groups? And it's because it's very different than, let's say, you know, American boy bands from 10 years yes. ago. So transmedia storytelling is a form of marketing where you cross like almost cross pollinate stories across different forms of media so i always give the example of like lost the tv show it was the tv show but there was also websites and games that were kind of tie-ins and they give you more information you know star trek star wars marvel any of the big franchises you know they're telling different stories in books and in games and you know on and video games and different movies and different TV shows. And they're all, they're all the same story that they're telling you, but they're marketing to you in different ways. And the stories are building and the different elements of it in different mediums are building on each other, telling a larger story. So you always want to kind of, or if, if you are a diehard fan, you want to engage with all those mediums. Obviously most people don't like most people out there do not engage with every single aspect of like star Wars world building. Like you're not, the average person isn't 
you know, watching the movies and watching the TV show and reading the books and, you know, playing the video games and stuff. But there are those fans and that's great. And that's kind of who the equivalent of K-pop stands are. And so K-pop, I actually wrote my college thesis on this. Um, so that's why I'm always like, transmedia marketing is the thing that propels K-pop. So when I wrote it, uh, my thesis, not my book, when I wrote my thesis back when I was a baby college student, um, my idea was that, and, and I still hold by this idea, that K-pop companies kind of cross-pollinate K-pop stars. So you're not just listening to the music and you're not just watching the music video. You're also watching them on TV shows, whether that's variety shows or um, K-dramas. You're seeing them in movies. You're seeing them on YouTube. You're seeing them on social media. You're seeing them, you know, there's uh, live streaming apps that are dedicated to K-pop called, there's one called VLive and now um, Big Hit, which, uh, Big Hit Entertainment, which BTS is under, uh, just like launched a whole new thing and is signing all these contracts with a lot of companies. It's a whole big business deal. You can Google. I've written about it. Um, and so they have their own platform called Weverse, where BTS members and other artists under their labels like chat with friends. And there's just like a lot going on. And so my idea of transmedia marketing with K-pop is these are, and it still is, are all these different platforms that K-pop artists engage. And so like, they kind of can, you know, um, I don't have to necessarily be on Instagram to see uh, a post on Twitter because a K-pop star is usually going to be posting across both platforms or something. Um, different things, you know, K-pop stars often will have their own Instagram accounts while they're shared their own updates that they won't necessarily be sharing on their group's Twitter account. So there's just that my idea of and my understanding of transmedia marketing when it comes to K-pop is just putting as much content out there as possible in different ways to kind of, you know, capture the most attention. So if you're a diehard fan, you're probably going to every single platform. Um, You know, you're watching every single video they put out. You're watching every, you know, dance cover they put out. You're watching if you're in Korea or you're watching online, all the like the advertisements they put out, you're buying all the products they're promoting. You're, you know, um, they often put like, um, photo cards or these wallet size, think baseball cards for K-pop stars, Mm. you know, they put them in albums. So you want to collect all the albums you, they put them in, um, like you can get, like, if you buy, I got, um, a while back BTS, um, they, I think they still are the spokespeople for this Korean, uh, skincare brand called Medihill. And I got my hands on a few packets and there were like huge postcard, photo sets of them in them so like you buy the face masks and you get these photo cards these very special they're i mean not very special they often release uh postcard size like photo sets but it's just like these are just mediheal ones so that like it's all this stuff since i wrote my thesis it's gotten a little bit more complicated because k-pop companies and k-pop groups now have their own internal universes so think of the MCU um, or, you know, the world of Harry Potter, which includes, you know, the books and the games and the, the Broadway show um, or the, the British show, Cursed Child and stuff. So um, since I wouldn't I wouldn't actually put it. I, I don't know if I have a date for it, but pretty like in the early 2010s, K-pop groups started putting out like lengthy multi music video music like album spanning concepts um so they would you know lean into this sort of idea of them you know telling a story through their music and their music videos so uh the first the one that always i think of is tiara had like this whole complex dystopian story throughout a few music videos 
um, EXO and BAP were two boy bands. They are two. Well, EXO is still a boy band. BAP, I don't know if they've formally disbanded. Um, I, I probably did know that at one point. I'm really sorry. I'm tired. Um, so they both had EXO and BAP had debut concepts that they were like, aliens coming to the planet <laughs> and like BAP literally like they have these little bunnies. I was obsessed. EXO has like this whole superpower thing, which I'm a total like fangirl. I was obsessed with it. And BTS didn't start out with that, but they now have their BU, the BTS universe where they're telling stories that are connected throughout different platforms. So music videos, Twitter, they have Twitter accounts, they have Instagram accounts. Like sometimes you'll like see a post and it'll be like a link to a secret website where this sort of thing is related. There are webtoons, there's all this stuff involved. And a lot of K-pop groups are now doing that. So there's, you know, the girl group Luna and they have their Lunaverse. And um, Tomorrow by Together is a group under BTS's company, Big Hit. And they also have their universe. And now we've heard that. SM Entertainment, which is a big major player in the industry, um, which EXO happens to be under, is now going to be launching like their own like SM universe that's going to carry out throughout different songs and stuff. And like they have a co- whole team up with Marvel. So now things have kind of gotten beyond my early idea of transmedia and my and still my understanding. I like want to clarify that I still feel that is the right definition of transmedia for K-pop, but like it's gotten even deeper because now they're actually putting out fictional media as part of this whole transmedia thing. So you'll see like websites dedicated to like BTS's universe and you'll see like fan theories all the time on social media about various releases. So like, is ATs doing this in a music video or is Monster X doing that? Is this video connected to this? And like a lot of times, a lot of times it is intentional. Sometimes I think it's like, the the creative directors are like looking at fan twitters to figure out like what the fan theories to like figure out what they're gonna do next um I, i'm sure that's not true in most cases but i'm, I'm like 99 sure it's gonna come out like in like 10 years someone's gonna be like oh yeah we had no idea what we were doing we were just hoping fans like went with it um so it's just really cool because now from like this very polished industry we were seeing like fiction coming out and all these storytelling so it's like almost like the transmedia um theory that i had originated about k-pop um or not i don't i don't know if i originated it i know i talk about it a lot (laughs) um then i did my thesis on it and i didn't see any topics at the time about anybody writing about it um i'm sure other people do know but um so like it's gotten even deeper so now it like has another level to it where it's not just um them marketing the artists themselves like uh but it's actually they're marketing the the stories of the artists as well the so it's just very interesting and uh there's a lot going on nowadays and it's i I feel like if you're listening to this podcast and you know nothing about k-pop you're coming out of this like i'm never gonna get into k-pop but really it's just so exciting and you also don't need to get into it that deep there is a saying that k-pop is like a rabbit hole and you will get into it that deep, but you can also just enjoy like the music or the music videos. That is totally fine. Not everyone needs to be crazy like me. This is super. This is really helpful. And yes, when when you wrote when when I when I read that in your book, I was like, this makes so much sense. I think a big piece why uh, K-pop in particular is able to do this type of transmedia storytelling is because of the unique agency relationship where it's not not like a formal label it's kind of like all-inclusive relationship between um artists and and their agencies so 
again, for people who listen to listen to this podcast, maybe with a more business minded uh, reason, what can you explain a bit about that relationship between agencies slash labels and K-pop artists? Yeah, I think like the easiest comparison that maybe listeners might be familiar with is Disney. So like how a Disney Channel star will be marketed by like the Disney Corporation. Um, they'll be on TV shows. They'll be singing. Probably they'll like be doing Disney radio um, stuff. They'll be, you know, promoting various like commercials that are tied in, like are tied into like their brand. Um, it's sort of that on steroids. So a K-pop company um, as a music company, most, most K-pop companies are in charge of not only artist development and A&R and marketing, but they're also usually in charge of distribution or nowadays, increasingly they're actually um, larger companies in Korea are now distributing other smaller companies. So it's actually be kind of interesting what's going on. Um, but everything is top down. So K-pop stars, if you're unfamiliar with the trainee system, it's the idea is that the raw talent can be trained. And, and I know a lot, there's a lot of stigma around it, but I think at the end of the day, like most people, you know, you need to be trained in your field, whatever it is. Um, so I think it's, I think it's kind of beautiful actually that, there is, you know, such intensity put into it, the circumstances and human rights, there's a whole lot of stuff involved, but pretty much uh, artists tra train or they somehow get discovered or they audition uh, to get into larger K-pop companies. And then those companies eventually debut an artist, a group or an artist. And um, the, the company handles everything, like every single thing. Um, occasionally they'll get like contractors, you know, obviously they hire people, like there are companies that do like album design that are, or music video directing. Like usually those aren't in-house. Usually those are things that they hire out, but they usually work with similar teams. They hire producers, but like the A&R is always their, you know, their say everything is like their idea. They don't, you know, nothing goes out of house. Like Uh, it's not like you have a, you know, a manager who as an artist is your manager and you have a record deal and your record company is different than your management or your agency, you know, representation is different. Like you don't have that. Like artists don't have agents. They don't have managers that aren't a part of their company usually. Um, sometimes when artists get older and they either leave their first company, um, they might like bring an, a manager with them and then that's like actually their own manager and then they go to a new place and that manager still stays with them. But that usually is like later on into their career. Um, it's, it's kind of um, everything is kind of drawn from the whole idea of the, it's, it's kind of the business model in Korea. So if you're familiar, you know, with Samsung and LG or Lotte or CJ or any of the Chebol in Korea, Like every company is, you know, they try to be, you know, built upon themselves. They try to, you know, make deals internally. They try to have different departments that do different things. And so K-pop companies are kind of like microcosms of that. And so everything like from top down to like the training of the artists are, or I wouldn't say the training of the artists is actually in the company. It is in the company usually, but there's actually pre-training. It's a whole thing. Um, And that's like before you sign on with a company. So there's just like everything. There's not the different tiers of like industry companies that are involved. Like you don't, you do not need a different 
yeah, a, a, a different label than your management agent label. So there's not going to be like, I wouldn't say there's not going to be issues like Scooter Braun and, and Taylor Swift, but um, it'll be more top down. It's going to be like an artist suing their company to try to get like out of their contract. So, you know, they act as agents. Like there was just a big uh, contract actually happens to be with a Hong Kong K-pop born K-pop star, Elkie, formerly of the girl group CLC. She sued the, her company Cube Entertainment saying they weren't paying her properly and they weren't supporting the group she was in CLC. And she wants to end her contract because of that. But usually, um, uh, sorry, the interesting thing that I was going to say was that um, the money wasn't like, they weren't showing her how the money was being paid. In the Western scene, usually an agent would be handling that or an aid, like you would have middle men who are in charge of getting you the money and they would have to prove, like they would have to show receipts and stuff. But everything is one company is dealing with everything. So your manager is there, your agent is there, your like, I mean, you don't have an agent. Agents don't really exist in Korea, um, which I think needs to change, but that's a different conversation. Um so yeah, so it's all very top down and there's a lot of, um, I don't want to, I'm going to say control, but it's not necessarily like people have all these stigmas about like, oh, you know, K-pop stars are dolls or whatever. Um, definitely, <laughs> definitely not true. They're people too. Um, but the company, when you consider that it's like a business structure, so there is a CEO on top usually, and then there's like all the middlemen and then the K-pop groups are, um, they're the, they're the thing that the company is marketing. They're, you know the music that they're putting out is kind of an add-on. Like usually, you know, yes, you can have a hit song or something, but the whole point of a hit song is almost to get a fandom to support this artist um, and their career. Uh, And uh, we're seeing kind of that fandom engagement kind of being uh, similarly happening in the US. So like Ariana Grande or Taylor Swift or um, just any big artist with big fandoms nowadays. Uh, But the the K-pop company... I think if you take a step out of like the idea of like what an entertainment company is or or isn't in the West and you kind of look at what the business models in Korea are, the whole K-pop thing kind of makes a whole lot more sense. Um, doesn't mean it's the right, necessarily the right model, but it's the one that's works for them and it's the one that they're going to keep working within. So um, yeah, so you just kind of everything, it's an all-in-one, <laughs> like there's no different um ele- like no elements are i mean no elements are getting out without the approval of the companies and like the managers are very involved like i mean i was going to i was actually i'm going to change that a little bit i wouldn't say not all everything is approval cuz like artists have their own phones so like they can post on social media or go do insta lives and stuff and like i've been in, i've been in interviews where like a manager will get in on like cuz now it's all zoom like um, i was just in one where a manager was like about to kill the artist because the artist was dropping spoilers about something and he's like <laughs> he's like he's not supposed to be saying this like we have not announced this <laughs> and the artist is just like this is fun um so like most of the time the relationship obviously it is a hierarchical one because you're 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 an employee like i try to obviously i'm a big k-pop fan and i love like group dynamics and i think they're funny haha <laughs> i love watching variety shows um but when you consider that their team is under a company like it makes a whole lot more sense the the, the dynamics um, of like K-pop groups and their companies. Like they're just they're you know <laughs> I wouldn't say they're the low men on the totem pole, but they're just another team within the company. They're just the front facing one. No, that makes a lot of sense and um, definitely explains why they're able to do kind of like 
all the things that they do is because everything is is in-house. For people who didn't really know about K-pop, who were just interested, who now are listening to the podcast and are like, I want to start getting into K-pop or I want to start, you know, putting my, my toes in the water. As a as a lifelong fan, what what do you what would you say is kind of the best place to start? So you should definitely go check out Vox's Explained on Netflix. There's a K-pop episode. Um, I may or may not be in it, <laughs> um, but it is. It's about a. I think it's like thirty minutes, and it's a quick explainer. Um, and I think it's still. It's a few years old. There's a few things that I'd probably change about it now, but it's a pretty good brief explainer of like what K-pop is and what it's what is going on. Um, there's another documentary coming out soon on YouTube. I don't know if the name has been confirmed or the release date has been confirmed, so I'm not going to say it right now, but it's by Banger Films, which made, um, shoot, what's the hip hop one called on Netflix? They made a really good hip hop documentary series on Netflix and now they're doing one for K-pop on YouTube. Um, it's very good. I mean, I can't actually, I can't vouch for it. I've only know what I said was very good in my opinion. Um, and I didn't hear anybody else. So I hope it's good. Uh, but yeah, I think definitely the Vox's explained thing was a pretty, and like, I'm not just saying this because I was involved, but actually it was a really well done. Um, they put a lot of thought into it. A lot of times like K-pop, there's this trope of the dark side of K-pop that is very common in Western media which like totally dehumanizes K-pop stars and is like suicides are right and left and we have to cover every suicide and every, and companies are abusing all their artists and everything is terrible as if like Kesha didn't have a terrible relationship and Taylor Swift has to do this. And we don't ever have entertainers who unfortunately die by suicide in the West. Like it's a very uh, unfortunate uh, situation and it's just like a really bad media trope and there's a lot of orientalist uh elements of it and, and so the vox explain one kind of totally doesn't do away with it it just doesn't necessarily make that like the emphasis of like how to fix k-pop being terrible um like another serious documentary was so i would start there and if you're interested of any of the songs that are talked about and look at them up, you know, just go to YouTube and start watching K-pop music videos. Like I would personally say, go watch BTS's music videos, obviously BTS blood, sweat and tears. You should go check that out. But I think a lot of people now that's already a few years old. Like they're, they just released an English single called dynamite, which was a huge hit. Um, it was so much fun. I wouldn't necessarily say it was like their absolutely most, um, like the epitome of what BTS is because it was just kind of like a fun song that they released during COVID kind of like to lighten up everyone's days. Um, but BTS talks about a lot of like sociocultural issues and everything under the sun. They have series called like love yourself and map of the soul that are kind of trying to flesh out like how to love yourself and how to sort out like your identity and stuff. So it's very intense, <laughs> but it, so I wouldn't necessarily start. I wouldn't necessarily think dynamite is the epitome of BTS, but it is a, fun song and might get you interested in other things. Uh, you know, if you're more into girl female acts than uh, male ones, girl groups like Blackpink and Itzy and Red Velvet, you kind of just have to like find your uh, your niche of like there's there is every single type of K-pop group under the sun. There are pop bands. There are like groups that are influenced by rock. There are um, actual rock bands 
like k-pop rock bands that are pop rockers there are ones that like incorporate like metal um <laughs> which is just a lot of fun um like this one group Dreamcatcher, they are a, like a ball of fun when they um release content that's like really leaning into like their like dark <laughs> satanic like girl group concept it's really fun um but there's really something for everyone. Like if you want a direct recommendation, I'm happy to do that. One of my last things before I left Billboard was I actually made an A to Z guide. Uh, one for, one was a guide to K-pop's like um, fandom slang. And one was a, a playlist with a bunch of songs, both old and new, that were like a good quick playlist for fans from A to Z. So I kind of, you know, I put some of the big hits. I put some of the songs I particularly love. I put like new hits that came out like last year hits that came out like a decade ago. So there's something I think for everyone on that playlist. Um, and if you don't like K-pop, that's fine. There's more for me. I don't care. Awesome. I will link the, those articles in, in the, in the show notes as well. So uh, tomorrow, obviously this, this has been great. This was so insightful for me and I'm sure for the audience as well. If people want to follow you and your work, how can they best do that? Um, so, you can follow me on social media. I'm at Tamar Writes on every platform. You can check out my website, tamarherman.com. And also you can follow my reporting at the SCMP. It's really nice that I'm only at one writing for one place right now. So I can just redirect everyone there. Um, there's a way to like follow my stories and via email, or you can sign up for the SCMP's uh, K-Post weekly newsletter, which I write my some of my stories appear in every week um it's fun it's cute other teams also are involved and i have no say over those stories and sometimes they are interesting um but it's it's really yeah it's nice it's a nice place to read all k-pop stuff um but yeah that's pretty much it i'm on twitter too much i recently joined clubhouse so i've been hosting some k-pop rooms there um but yeah that's pretty much it. TamarHerman.com updates really regularly. It's an automatic feed, which I really like. And if you want to check out my book, you can buy it, BTS Blood, Sweat, and Tears from any real retailer. If you support local booksellers, that'd be great. I'm sure they can order it for you. I doubt they have it in stock. Um, but also if you want to read it in Russian or German, it's also out in Russian or German, which is pretty cool. <laughs> Congratulations. That is really awesome. And thanks again. This was such an insightful conversation. And to our audience, we'll see you next week.